If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Funnables. Funnables aren't just fruit snacks. Every bite your child takes is fuel to spark their imagination, taking them from a wild unicorn space mission to a deep sea dive into a rainbow river. Funnables are made with 7.1% real fruit puree and are an excellent source of vitamins A, C, and E. So anytime, any place, make snack time playtime with Funnables fruit snacks. Have fun, eat it too. Visit FunnablesSnacks.com to shop now. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Wagner was always very flamboyant and very bossy. He sent Nietzsche off to the silk shops to buy him silk underwear because Wagner liked to wear silk underwear. And Nietzsche was very embarrassed about this, but he, you know, he, he, he summoned up his courage and in he went and he bought it and he was quite pleased with himself. That was Sue Prideau discussing Friedrich Nietzsche's relationship with Richard Wagner. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, who is now, rather unfortunately, best known for having been an inspiration to the Nazis. Nietzsche is the subject of a new biography by the author Sue Prideaux. 
and I met up with her at the offices of her publisher Faber to talk about his eventful life and his work, which became so dreadfully misrepresented. Nietzsche is obviously a difficult choice for any biographer. What made you want to write his life? Well, I didn't want to write his life at all, actually. But I was very interested in revisiting Nietzsche because um, I had been fascinated by him when I was a teenager, like many teenagers are, and I didn't quite understand him, but I knew he was wonderful and he wrote these lovely aphorisms that I could scrawl on my books and feel clever. And then I wrote a biography of August Strindberg, the Swedish playwright, And in 1888-89, he um, corresponded with Nietzsche and was reading a lot of Nietzsche. And during that time, he wrote his great masterpiece play, Miss Julie, which is very influenced by Nietzsche's ideas of the Ubermensch and the Untermensch and the tension between the two. And then Strindberg went to Berlin in 1892-3, and he and Edvard Munch became absolute best friends. And I'd written a biography of Edvard Munch, and it was then Strindberg introduced Munch to Nietzsche, and it was the following summer that Munch painted The Scream. So, you know, God is dead, ah, where do we go from here? And so then, having written those two biographies, I thought, okay, let's revisit Nietzsche, let's see, you know, if as a mature person, there's something in it, or is it just the sort of excitement of teenage? And I I loved his books. I was very, very interested by the simplicity, in a way, of his philosophy, the simplicity and the directness. But I wasn't going to write about him because there was all the complications of Hitler and Nazis, and I didn't want to go into all that. But then I started reading his letters. And reading his letters, I just discovered there's another Nietzsche, you know, I had no idea of, even though I'd read biographies of him and things. And there was a particular one that actually I start the book with. Nietzsche is 24, and he's about to take up a professorship at Basel, but basically in his heart he's a student. And he's besotted by the music of Richard Wagner, and he's invited to meet Wagner, invited to an evening party. And so he thinks, wow! My goodness, I've got to have a new suit for this, you know. So he goes to the tailor and he orders an evening suit and come the evening he's sitting in his room and the tailor arrives and he puts on the suit and it looks wonderful. And then the tailor says, but I need my payment, please, and I want it now. And so Nietzsche hasn't got it just then, you know. No, no, my good man. Whereupon he and the tailor embark on a wrestling match over the suit, and the tailor wins, and Nietzsche writes, you know, and there was I, an insignificant little man, in my shirt tails, thinking, oh, well, my old black velvet's going to have to be good enough, and off he goes, he runs through the rainstorm, late for the party, and he and Wagner talk about Schopenhauer, and it's the start of the most important friendship in his life. The relationship with Nietzsche and Wagner is hugely important in his life and, mm. and in his book. And I wonder if we could just go back a little bit before that and talk just briefly about his formative years, mm. his childhood, and what impact some of the events that happened to him then might have had in his later life. Yeah, sure. Well, he was born in 1844, uh, the son of a priest in a tiny, tiny, tiny little hamlet, really sort of an expanded farmyard. And his father... Um, was married to a priest's daughter, 
So the whole thing was religion. Nietzsche was the eldest boy, then comes Elizabeth, and then comes little Joseph. And when Nietzsche was three, his father started exhibiting symptoms of insanity. He would go silent for long periods and just sit, and the wife would shake him and things, and eventually he'd come back. But anyway, he spent a year going insane, and he died when Nietzsche was four. The speculation what um, what the pastor died about, it might have been syphilis. The post-mortem reveals brain softening, liquefaction of a large part of his brain. It might have been insanity in the family. There was quite a bit of insanity. We, we don't know. So he dies when Nietzsche is four. And then Nietzsche has a dream that his father's grave opens up and he comes in his grave clothes and he comes and he fetches little brother Joseph. And shortly after that dream, Joseph died. And although Nietzsche, you know, eschews the supernatural, he does place great importance on this dream. He writes about it. So that's a kind of tension, a very interesting tension, really. So then it's just Nietzsche and his mother, hyper-religious mother, and his sister Elizabeth, who's a couple of years younger than him, very intelligent, um, but of course doesn't receive proper education because girls don't. And then Nietzsche is sent to the sort of foremost school in the land, which, when you're talking about Germany, is saying something. And um, the boys, they weren't allowed any newspapers or anything to connect them to, you know, day-to-day life. And they were encouraged to converse in Latin and Greek. And Nietzsche set himself to think in Latin and Greek which he probably did because he, you know, he, did, he doesn't say that he didn't. And he emerged. Actually, no, what he wanted to be was a musician. But this really was not an intellectual enough profession at all. And so he was, he was channeled into what was then considered the highest sort of intellectual pursuit, which was philology and classical philology, the science and history of classical languages. He was very good at that. But... Even, even at school, he became interested in two figures, both of whom became insane and were very interested in their insanity. One was the Empedocles from way back in the classics. He eventually jumps into Vesuvius, thinking that he will emerge transfigured into a god. And then the second one is the German poet Hölderlin, and he too went insane and in the sort of 1750s, 60s, and spent his time in a, in a tower, in a town wall. Um, sometimes there were wonderful bursts of poetry. Sometimes there were sort of impenetrable pronouncements. And Nietzsche became fascinated by these two, and he wrote about them. But at his school, this was absolutely not considered healthy or right or anything, and he was criticised for that. And so at what point would you say Nietzsche starts to become what we would nowadays consider to be a philosopher in his own right? When he's 14, he writes sort of privately. Uh, The Holy Trinity can't be right because everything has to contain its antithesis. So it can't be the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost. It's got to be the Father, Son and the Devil. So if you think of that as a philosophical statement then, but um, not really actually until much Later, he's more of a, of, of a cultural commentator 
and this gets all bound up with Wagner and Wagner's operas and Nietzsche writing The Birth of Tragedy. And so Nietzsche's relationship with Wagner, as we alluded to earlier, is hugely important to his Mm. life. Wagner clearly was a musical giant at this time. So the admiration on that side is obvious, but what was it that made Wagner want to become close to Nietzsche, who at this time was not a heavyweight figure? No, he wasn't, but Wagner really, really was an outsider. And he had one supporter, one supporter in wonderful, crazy King Ludwig of Bavaria, who was bankrolling him. But he needed, Wagner needed a respectable sort of imprimatur, and um, Nietzsche was a professor. So Wagner thought, well, okay, he's a professor, you know, he can, he can seal this off as sort of respectable. And, of course, Nietzsche absolutely adored his music, so they were twin souls in that way. What was the nature of their relationship? Was it a relationship of equals or were there tensions within it? Wagner was always very flamboyant and very bossy. I mean, he sent Nietzsche off to the silk shops to buy him silk underwear because Wagner liked to wear silk underwear. And Nietzsche was very embarrassed about this, but he, you know, he, he, he summoned up his courage and in he went and he bought it and he was quite pleased with himself. And he didn't mind that because he was quite starved of intimacy at home. And so to be sent shopping by somebody was really very nice, actually. And he was given a room in Wagner's house. So, you know, it was home, actually. But at the same time, the intellectual duels were duels of equals. In his relative youth, Nietzsche was also involved in some conflicts. And they, I believe they shaped his life to quite a large extent. I wonder if you could expand a bit on that. I think it was 1867 he had to do his military service um, because you did, you know, if you were German. And so um, he he was in the cavalry and so he had to learn to to ride a horse and he had to learn to, um, is it called limber, a cannon, you know, when you push stuff down a cannon for the cannonball and so on and so forth. And he writes again, you know, his humour, he writes very amusingly about this and he has to look after his cavalry horse and he's, it's quite a large animal and, and he says, and while I'm under its tummy, grooming it, I, I, sometimes I whisper, Schopenhauer, help! <laughs> <laughs> but then um, they're taught to mount their horses at a run and he misjudges the run and he lands with a tremendous crash on the pummel of his saddle and it basically, I'm not sure it breaks his breastbone, but it certainly takes chips out of his breastbone and it's a terrible wound and it takes a very, very, very long time to heal. It suppurates all the time and he's given sort of salt baths and mercury baths and so on and so forth. Anyway, eventually it heals. But then later um, in 1870, when the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, Nietzsche then is a professor at Basel University. And in order to do that, he had to renounce his German citizenship for some reason, God knows why, take up Swiss citizenship. He never takes up the Swiss one. But when the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, he is no longer a German citizen. And he is horrified by war. 
Nevertheless, he feels that as a German, it is certainly his duty to serve his country in some way. And rather than go back into the cavalry, where I'm sure they would have had him, um, he volunteers as, uh, as a medical orderly. And after a very, very short training period, practically not even three weeks, um, he is sent to the battlefields to look after the wounded and the dying and put them on trains to go to the next place and so on and so forth. And um, he sees horrifying sights and he becomes infected. Um, he gets, what does he get, dysentery, diphtheria. People say possibly he was, um, possibly he caught syphilis at this moment from the sort of bodily fluids of the people he was treating. But who knows? Anyway, he got jolly ill. So when does Nietzsche start to write the works for which he's now so famous? Well, um, The Birth of Tragedy is 1871. And that's really, that fits in between the start of his relationship with Wagner and when Wagner opens the opera house in Bayreuth, which is the start of Nietzsche and Wagner. At the start of the split between Nietzsche and Wagner. So he writes The Birth of Tragedy, you know, so famous now, um, splitting culture and civilization really into the Apollonian and the Dionysian. The Apollonian exemplified by, say, sculpture and architecture, reason and so on and so forth. Um, and the Dionysian um, being particularly the art of music. And um, the art of forgetting, the art of losing self-control, the orgiastic, the communal, the Apollonian is much more individual. And Nietzsche says that only really great artworks can be produced by a balance between the two. And this is pretty shocking, really, <laughs> to, to, you know, what is quite sort of bourgeois and philistine Germany to let in Dionysus and to, you know, is not really approved of. And that's really the end of his career as a philologist being taken seriously. And then you have Bayreuth opening and Nietzsche and Wagner on their wonderful walks through the mountains envisaged this as a cultural rebirth, a three-day festival, free for everybody. Everyone could come. And then, and then Wagner rather marvellously says, um, then after the three days, the libretto and the score will be burnt, culture will be reborn, you know, it'll be the springboard, everyone will start again. Um, of course they don't. And Bayreuth has cost an enormous amount to build a new opera house and it's become terrifically fashionable. It's become like a sort of, um, well, it's, it's, it's what the fashionistas do is they come to Bayreuth and Nietzsche is horrified by this. It has nothing to do with culture. It has everything to do with continuing the pomposity, if you like, of previous culture and so off he goes. And then he's in the wilderness a bit, but he's picked up by, and this is quite interesting, he's picked up by a woman called Malvida von Mesenberg. And um, she's the sort of mother figure. And she was a sort of, she wasn't quite a revolutionary in the 1848, you know, upheavals. But she was a revolutionary in her head and she smuggled letters and she did this and that. And she um, worked as the tutor for um, Alexander Herzen, 
And um, she picked up Nietzsche and um, because she, she feels she wants to start an academy of free spirits, particularly women. You know, people don't really associate Nietzsche with the early feminists, but she was a very strong feminist and she wrote a lot about um, female emancipation and female education. And so then he, um, he goes to Sorrento with Malvida, where they fail to, um, to set up an academy of free spirits. But he gets more into this feminist circle, um, including a woman called um, Meta von Salis. And he encourages her, he encourages these feminists to, he gives them reading lists, he discusses with them, he tells them, go to university. They're only allowed to go as a listener at that time. But he says, no, no, go, go, go. And Meta becomes the first person to get a, the first woman to get a degree from a Swiss university. She gets a PhD in philosophy, which is pretty jolly amazing. So Nietzsche's relationship with women are very interesting. So on the one hand, there's this kind of intellectual thing, but he also did attempt to form other kinds of relationships with women. And I'm right to say he had a few proposals <laughs> yeah. to turn down, but why was it he never managed to form, never get married or form a really sustained relationship with a woman of that kind? Well, I think um, if, we can, if we can venture into romantic speculation which is all it is, really, isn't it? You know, you can't see into anyone's heart. Um, but when he was 24 and with this relationship with Wagner, Wagner was married to Cosima, and she was the daughter of Franz Liszt. And she is the most amazing and amazingly terrifying character. Very, very intelligent woman. Wagner was terrified of her. Nietzsche fell completely in love in an absolute non-touching way. I mean, non-physically touching, I mean by that. And so he had this woman who was someone else's wife, who was his ideal, and actually right at the end, when he goes mad, um, one of the last things he writes is to Cosima, and he says, Ariadne, I love you. And he signs it Dionysus. So all his life, I think, Cosima is deep, deep, deep in his heart. And then there are a couple of things. Um, you know, he seems to like falling in love on trains. There are some wonderful train pickups, lovely flurries. There's a ballet dancer, and he, he, he writes about her in a letter telling a friend, and he, he does this wonderful drawing of her and her tutu dancing and him sitting there watching. Yeah, and, um, but, you know, that kind of fizzles out. But then the next really serious one is a woman called Lou Salome. She's about 20 years younger than him. She is half Russian, very intellectual woman. And I think, you know, in today's parlance, we would say that she's, she's been damaged by an older tutor, actually a priest, who jumped on her. And she really doesn't like sex at all. Um, but anyway, she, she approaches Nietzsche because she's very interested in his philosophy. And she approaches him through his friend, another philosopher called Paul Ray. And they decide um, that they will live in a threesome in Paris, um, simply philosophizing. Nietzsche wants to go to Paris because he's very well aware that he is not at all good on the natural sciences. So he wants to go to the Sorbonne to study the natural sciences. Anyway, they have this plan. And Nietzsche's absolutely thrilled because he's never been to Paris. 
And then Ray and Lou simply run away from him. They just, they vanish. They hide, in fact, and he's completely bewildered. He doesn't understand um, what's happened and he is desperately damaged. And then he writes some horrible things about women then. Um, you know, what he writes about women really depends where he is in his emotional life, because one of the things that Nietzsche does say is that all philosophy is autobiographical, which was one of the sort of justifications for me writing his life. <laughs> this is a history podcast, but I think it would be interesting to maybe talk about some of his most important philosophical ideas mm. and also, I suppose, how out of step they were with, with other people at the time. So yeah. what would you say were kind of his, his key ideas or theories? Well, I think, I think his key, um, if we're talking about a historical framework, uh, the real key, of course, is Darwin publishing. You know, it always is at this moment, isn't it? You know, the 19th century. And he um, publishes in 1859, doesn't he? Origin of Species. And Nietzsche is still at school. And, and this really is the most enormous upheaval. And I find it quite interesting because Darwin takes about 20 years between visiting the Galapagos and actually publishing The Origin of Species. That's his sort of incubation period. And Nietzsche reads, well, he doesn't read Darwin because he doesn't read English. And in fact, in Germany, it's a guy called Lange who put forward these ideas in a very popular book. And Nietzsche reads Lange. And it takes him about 20 years to work out, well, to work up the courage to express that thought, God is dead, um, because he needs to really, you can say it in three words, um, but, you know, um, what he's really saying is that the two can't coexist, and um, if you're going to believe in science, well, then there is no supernatural, but more than that, there's no moral authority, and um, science can't provide the moral authority. So you've got all these questions that were used to be answered by God. You know, who am I? What am I? What's the point? That's, you know, the very, very important one. Is, is there an overarching point to life? Or are we just here and gone, you know? And um, Nietzsche's working through all that. And you get, well, you get this faith in science on the back of Darwin. And Nietzsche points out, it's very unpopular, you know. Well, there are various things about science. Um, science isn't constant. It can't provide a constant truth because, you know, today's discovery invalidates yesterday's truth. And there's no moral phenomenon in science. You can't take it as a, as a moral guide. Um, or even as, you know, as, as any sort of guide, really, just take science as science. Um, and that wasn't a popular thought in the times because, you know, people like to believe in something. They like something steady. And so he was removing a sort of steady prop. So there's a great deal of nihilism. And, of course, all the, all the loony religions spring up then, the sort of Satanism and theosophy and alchemy and magic and table-turning. And, you know, with photography, you get the advent of spirit photographs, you get all those things. Um, but what Nietzsche really then is saying, OK, um, if you 
want to be the Ubermensch, if you really want to find point, you cannot look for meaning outside yourself. So whether it's God or a Ouija board or whatever, no. You know, you don't, you don't have that excuse. You've got to look into the abyss and see what looks back at you. And then we probably go on a bit to how do you become the Ubermensch? And this again starts when he's about 14 at school, the whole process of working it out. The Ubermensch passage actually comes straight after the death of God passage, so the two are very much related. And it's a later interpretation that the Ubermensch is, is racial or, you know, um, biological. It's not. It's a, it's a spiritual, how do you deal with the moral vacuum? How do you, how do you as Nietzsche says, become what you are? And at school, he, he takes that up as his motto. Become what you are, having learned what that is. Become what you are, not what your mum wants you to be or your school teacher wants you to be. So then what you do is, to quote a later book of his, you philosophize with a hammer. You see all the idols that society has put up, be it science, be it God, be it Shakespeare, be it Kim Kardashian, and you look at them for yourself, and in fact, it's more like a tuning fork. You bang it with the tuning fork. If the tuning fork rings true, keep that value. If it's true to you, keep it. If not, smash the idol. So then you know what you believe in. You know what you believe in. And then thereafter, what you have to learn to do is to love your fate. He tells a sort of parable. If a demon came and whispered in your ear that you were condemned forever and ever and ever and ever and ever to relive your life over and over and over and over again in a circle, would you throw him out as a devil? Or would you receive him joyfully and think this is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me? This is how it should be. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I'd be absolutely desperate. Um, but the thing is, if you look at your life and you examine every single minute, particularly the suffering, particularly the terrible things, and you welcome it in and you purge yourself of a feeling of particularly resentment, or guilt, and you learn from that. Whatever hasn't killed you has made you stronger. That's the Ubermensch. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So... Uh, Nietzsche wrote a series of books mm. expressing his ideas. How well were they received at the time? How many people were buying these books? Well, I think the record was 600. So um, they were not, absolutely not received well. And in fact, the, the later books, um, he had to self-publish. Um, his publishers simply wouldn't, you know, there was no money in it, nobody was reading it. And then, actually, funnily enough, it's only something like 86, like two years before he goes mad, or maybe it's 87. There is a Danish um, literary critic who certainly the Anglo-Saxon world are pretty ignorant of, and, and why should they not be? He was called Georg Brandes. And at that time, um, Scandinavian literature was really breaking through. You know, if you think of Ibsen and Björnson and Hamsun and, you know, those people. It was enormous, really. And um, it was particularly enormous in France and Germany, where the literary movements, you know, they were sort of avant-garde. And actually, um, Georg Brandes, he tours the United States... He really has worldwide influence. So Brandes is very influential, really, and Russia, too, influential worldwide. And he picks up on Nietzsche's writings and he publicizes them. And then that's when he, um, he and Strindberg meet on a park bench in Copenhagen and he hands Strindberg some of Nietzsche's books. And, um, and then Nietzsche writes Miss Julia, as I said. So Brandes really is the proselytizer Coming back to the relationship with Wagner, mm. what is it that causes that to eventually break down? Well, there are two things, really. One, there is the absolute razzmatazz, that is the Bayreuth Festival, um, which shocked the rather pure-minded Nietzsche. Then there is, after that, as I said, Nietzsche goes into his sort of free-thinking period when he's rejecting God and he is actually sort of with his friend, the philosopher Paul Ray. He's going into the um, French rationalists like Voltaire and he becomes very rational and he writes human or too human. But at the same time, Wagner is writing Parsifal and this is the most religious. The ring is the ancient German gods and heroes. Parsifal goes right back to Jesus Christ and the bleeding wounds, and it's very, very hyper-religious, really. And so Wagner sends the libretto of Parsifal to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche's 
<laughs> sends the manuscript of Humnal to Human to Wagner. The two of them cross in the post, which Nietzsche likens to two rapiers crossing midair. Um, and they both dislike each other's work tremendously. So there's that. There's the intellectual disagreement. But it wouldn't have been such a breach had not Wagner written to Nietzsche's doctor, because Nietzsche had very, very poor eyesight. And Wagner was always interfering. He was always bossy. He was, it was well meant. He was always trying to help his friends. So, so he writes to um, Nietzsche's doctor saying, look, I think the bad eyesight, it's due to too much masturbation. You know, please will you examine him and, you know, send me a report and see what can be done. And, you know, maybe you could recommend that he marries. An incredibly indiscreet letter. And worse still, he doesn't actually write it himself. He dictates it. And it's when Nietzsche discovers this letter that, I mean, there's no going back. So you referred a little earlier to Nietzsche eventually going mad. Mm. What do you think brought that on? Well, right at the start, we were talking about his father. And his father died insane, age 36. Nietzsche lives longer, actually. He lives almost 20 years longer. But we don't know with Pastor Nietzsche whether it was syphilis or whether it was family insanity. And I'm afraid it's the, it's the same with Nietzsche. I mean, you know, whole books have been written about you know, Nietzsche and his syphilis. And there was never a post-mortem. When he is admitted into the psychiatric clinic, unfortunately, the real specialist in syphilis didn't examine him. What militates against syphilis is that he lived so much longer than you would have done if you had tertiary syphilis. He never gets that desperately sad thing that I've seen, you know, the eaten away nose and the peg-shaped teeth. So his face doesn't get those syphilitic characteristics. Nevertheless, it could easily have been or it could have been hereditary insanity. And at this point, I suppose we should talk a bit more about his sister, Elizabeth, because at this point she really takes over the story. So she becomes almost like in charge of Nietzsche, but Can we talk a little bit also about what her life had been like up to this point, and particularly her adventures in Paraguay? Absolutely, yeah. Now, well, she was two years younger than him. And um, and as I said, he, he really treated her like an equal human being. He, you know, he, he wasn't um, talking down to his little sister at all. You know, he did have this great respect for intelligent women. And um, he tried to educate her, but she didn't want to be educated. And Nietzsche... Um, very quickly within Bismarck's Germany, Nietzsche hated the anti-Semitism and the nationalism that the strong Germany was uh, using as props, really. Elizabeth, however, was madly anti-Semitic, madly nationalistic, and she married a leading anti-Semitic agitator called Bernard Furster. And she and Furster decided that the only way, really, to make a new, pure Germany, uncorrupted by where the Jewish foot had trod, um, was to go out to Paraguay and with a small band of pure-blooded Aryans. And um, off they went to Paraguay, and they were 
granted a bit of land by the Paraguayan government. The whole thing was a terrible cheat and they took money from the colonists and they never paid for the land at all. The whole thing was hopeless. You know, there was, they never put any money into roads or sewage or anything and they just exploited these poor people. And it was a scandal. Anyway, her husband took poison because the whole thing was so ghastly. She just pretended that the whole thing was a tremendous success and she sent these sort of bulletins back to Germany. Totally fake news, you know, it's all going so well. Anyway, Nietzsche had gone mad and there was this great interest in him. Um, so she thought, woohoo, I'll go back to Germany. I'll take over my brother, I'll build an archive, and um, this is another way I will, you know, I will become self-important. This will be my role in life. So that's exactly what she did. And she built the Nietzsche archive. She got lots of letters and all his... When he went mad, there was mountains and mountains of scraps of paper. He was an incredibly untidy writer. And he was also, for all his brevity of expression, you know, the, I was going to say thousands, but possibly hundreds of drafts for something that eventually emerges into God is dead or whatever, doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Uh, so there was lots of paper. Elizabeth took the paper, created this archive, and simply filled it with people of her own political persuasion, the early national socialists who would become, you know, the Nazis. She forged a lot of letters and she cut and pasted this book called The World to Power, which, you know, says by Friedrich Nietzsche, which contained 400 sort of aphorisms. And it was such a success that a couple of years later, she reissued it with something like 1,400 aphorisms. She just bunged in a thousand more. She got nominated, I think, five times for the Nobel Prize, and the Nazis took her up. And she corresponded when Mussolini came to power, she corresponded with him. And then there was a joyful moment in her life when she put on a play in Weimar, written by Mussolini, and Hitler, who was not then Chancellor of Germany, he was obviously you know, head of the Nazi party, etc. He came and called on her in the theatre and presented her with a bunch of red roses. And um, then the year after, when he was Führer, he visited the archive and she gave him Nietzsche's walking stick and he was photographed by the statue of Nietzsche. And then when Elizabeth died, Hitler actually came to her funeral and allowed himself to be photographed looking sad. Uh, he didn't often do that because it wasn't very good propaganda to see him looking sad, but she was hailed as the mother of the nation, and there he was. Now, what was it about Nietzsche's philosophy, or at least Elizabeth's version of Nietzsche's philosophy, that so appealed to fascists such as the Nazis? Well, he's awfully good at these soundbites. And if you want um, a good soundbite for, you know, the German warrior, OK, steal the Ubermensch. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful racist slogan, um, as is the blonde beast, you know, um, which in fact, again, well, a, it's a parallel of, of the lion roaming the early jungles and the blonde beast is in fact the ancestor of all human races before he's the man who made the first states. So he's absolutely nothing to do with blonde Germans roaming about killing each other. And, of course, the will to power. 
So they just take these wonderful little sound bites and use them as they will. But it's fair to say that if somebody read Nietzsche's philosophy properly, they, there's no way on earth you could associate that with Nazism and that he himself would have been horrified yes. by what his philosophy was used for. Yes, yes. But he did know, he did understand the danger of words, that the pen is mightier than the sword. And he does, when he gets um, a review that describes Human All Too Human as a dangerous book, and this is the anti-God book, basically, and the reviewer says about this, it's the time when the St. Gotthard Tunnel is being blasted through the Alps, and the reviewer says, um, you can't blame the dynamite for blasting this tunnel through the St. Gotthard. It's a destructive act, but it's also a constructive act. You cannot blame the dynamite for the effect that it has. And he says, Nietzsche's book, Nietzsche's dangerous book, is dynamite. And Nietzsche is, Nietzsche's thrilled, actually, because he's recognised as a dangerous thinker. But he does realise that if you put down extreme thoughts on paper, they can be interpreted in many, many ways. And alongside the Nazis who venerated Nietzsche, who were some of his other influential adherents in later years? It's interesting because, I mean, you know, he started more as a cultural commentator and his immediate effect is far more on, on culture than on philosophy. I mean, lovely things like, you know, um, Picasso was adored reading Nietzsche. And I think that Nietzsche's idea of perspectivism, there are no truths, only perspectives. Well, you know, I think that leads straight to cubism. I, I'm sure that must have played a part in Picasso's thought. Then, of course, there's Edvard Munch, God is Dead, Munch paints the scream, there's Strindberg, there's George Bernard Shaw, there are the dancers, Nijinsky and um, Isadora Duncan, extremely influenced by the birth of tragedy and his writing on Dionysianism. And um, the list goes on, it's a long list. Coming forward to the present day, mm. Were Nietzsche alive in today's world, what do you think he'd make of it? I think he would love the free thinking because he's always one for the individual rather than the doctrine. And we are all trying to find the ubermensch in ourselves, aren't we? The age of the herd, I think, has gone. Well, you know, people can argue with that, but I think the individual has a much freer hand these days. You don't get drummed out of the brownies if, if you're not one of the herd, if you don't believe, you know, if you're not a communist or, you know, in the church congregation, etc. So I think he would adore that freedom. I think he would not believe that Trump had been elected. I think he would not believe the phenomenon of fake news is still going on when he says, you know, there are no truths, only perspectives. And what you've got to do is you've got to look at the perspective from which information is coming. That's what he says. And then judge it. And so that we're still here being fed this stupid propaganda seems totally ludicrous, actually, when we live in such a free world. What else would he like? He would be, he says, the ubermensch is the meaning of the earth 
And the earth is the meaning of the Ubermensch. And he says that we must not look outside the earth for meaning. And so, I mean, he would seriously approve of the ecological movement. And so just just one last question then. So still in the present day, what do you think Nietzsche could teach people today or how useful are Nietzsche's thoughts and ideas nowadays? Well, I'll be specific and I'll be general. One is that I think one of the problems of today is people, okay, in in America, people call them the left behinds, suffer from resentment. And Nietzsche says, you won't get anywhere as a person until you purge yourself of resentment. Two things, guilt and resentment. But if only people could go forward from feeling that their neighbors are better than them or their neighbors have a bigger car or whatever, you know, if only people could think about Nietzsche and think, I want to purge resentment from my life, that's phenomenal. That would be very good. And then with that goes, of course, that wonderful thing of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and that's tied in with the resentment. But um, I think finally what I'd really like to leave on is Nietzsche has the most amazing faith in human potential, that anyone can become the Ubermensch. Anyone can, if they look at themselves carefully enough, can actually make that of themselves, whether a man, woman, child, whatever. And I think that's just phenomenal. That was Sue Prideau. I Am Dynamite, A Life of Friedrich Nietzsche, is out now, published by Faber. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. But we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.